Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com chapters. There you'll find over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. On this episode of Chapters... And I read a description of, of those books a couple of years ago that I really enjoyed, which was white guy competency porn. Because it's like a nice, a nice like upper middle class white guy will just solve all of the nation's problems. Welcome to Chapters, the podcast where we hear the stories of readers' lives through the books that have meant the most to them. I'm Mary Mahoney, and today my guest is Chris Boughton. Chris is a historian turned jury researcher who is working on a book about slave violence in antebellum Virginia. On this episode, we talk about childhood forays into playwriting inspired by books reading about the Civil War, reading on the beach, an influential reading of Moneyball, being an introvert, and more. This is Chapters. So I just want to begin by saying thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks. Well, uh, long time, first time. Oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I want to start by asking you what your earliest memory of reading is. So I think the earliest memory I have going back is actually my dad reading to me and my brother. Um, he would read to us at night before we went to bed and we would go into my parents' bedroom. We'd climb up on their bed because, you know, they had a high kind of bed that, you know, as an adult, it's actually not that high. But when you're four, it's like a big deal. And he would read um, stories from an English veterinar- veterinarian. I can say that word, um, named James Harriet. And it was All Creatures Great and Small was one of the books he read from. And it was this kind of cool thing that my dad would do because we had dogs and we grew up with animals in the household and stuff. And these were all stories about dogs and their owners and pets and, you know, sort of the whole family dynamic of what it's like to live with animals and stuff. And it was nice that my dad kind of did it because he worked about an hour away. So by the time we got up in the morning, he was out the door or on his, you know, or he'd already left. And then he would come back and we would have dinner and then he would, you know, just kind of relax at the end of the day. But he would always take the time to read to us, which I kind of, which I always enjoyed. Hmm. And we are a family mostly of readers. Like my mother reads voraciously of anything she can get her hands on. Um, she, she loves fiction especially, and she's almost always reading on, I think at one point she had a Kindle, a Nook, and she was reading on her iPad at the, at the same time. I think she's condensed that down since then. Um, my father reads as well, um, less voraciously than my mother, but still he reads quite a bit. So reading was always something that we just kind of did in the house, like at my end house growing up and it's interesting because in your memory of these early reading experiences it seems like the thing you remember most is the connection with your dad yeah. not so much the substance of what you were being read yeah i mean i i couldn't tell you any of the individual stories from all creatures great and small that <laughs> you know long path that long path out of my memory so what are the earliest things you remember either being having read to you or reading yourself that actually did stay in your memory? What was some of the earliest things that really resonated with you? I remember we had these, we had these, I don't remember the title of them, but they were these, they had a blue cover 
and they were biographies of famous Americans. So like Lincoln, Washington, Teddy Roosevelt, people like that. But they were written for, for kids and they were written about their childhoods. So like, what was it like to be Teddy Roosevelt growing up? What was it like to be Lincoln growing up? And it was very much written for, from that kind of perspective and that kind of audience. I can't remember the titles of them. You know, I couldn't remember, like, it was, it was obviously a series, but I couldn't, I can't remember the series exactly. Um, and I remember those sticking with me a lot because they were illustrated, but they were also, like, I remember, I remember, like, seeing illustrations of, like, Washington and the tree and stuff, and stuff like that. And that was one of the sort of earliest examples of me reading history, which would become a recurring sort of theme up into the present, I guess. So when you read those books about presidents mainly, was it mainly presidents growing up? Yeah, it was main. like, I think the series was mainly, you know, sort of like a great Americans. And it was, you know, primarily, I think it was primary presidents and it was primarily male. Hopefully a more modern rendition of the series would be a little more yeah. gender, gender and racially inclusive. That'd be nice. Um, yeah. Did you read those books and think I want to be president someday or I want to be a great person in history or were you just thinking wow those people who went on to be great had lives somewhat childhood similar to mine More of the second one than the first one I think I think every kid at one point thinks like oh wouldn't it be great to be president and then you grow up and realize that you kind of have to be a lunatic to want to be president of the United States because it's a crazy job um, it was, it was more of that sort of connection uh, to, to what you were saying, like that connection of, Hey, they were like me once. I mean, I never lied about chopping down a cherry tree, but I definitely lied at some point as a kid and got caught. You know, we all, we all did that. Well, speak for yourself, Chris. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You were perfect. Mm-hmm. Correct. Um, so you read these books. What are some of the first books that were really your books when you became a reader yourself what are some of the first books that when you think back now as an adult were really important to different parts of your childhood hmm, that's a good question the, the first thing that came into my head you know as you asked that question was in third grade i read a book called snow treasure which was this is going to sound weird but or maybe it won't but it was this like kid story about um, these Norwegian children who were smuggling gold out of Norway under the guise of the German occupation. They would like hide it in sleds and then they would take it down a hill and then there was some other machination that um, like they, it was it would suddenly be put on a fishing trawler and eventually this fishing trawler escaped with the whole um, with the whole, you know, lot of gold or whatever. It's a fictional story, it didn't happen. But I really liked the story, so this was third grade. And what I decided to do was, to, to, to sort of make the story my own was, I decided to make it into a play that my third grade class would perform. Take and we me, did. Take me through this process. I'm fascinated. So first of all, this book is not based on any true event. Someone, as far as I could tell, no. Just imagined into being that there would be Norwegian children who would smuggle gold using yeah, sleds. A, I, I, I think it was based on like a rumor that like someone had smuggled gold out of Norway in a fishing trawler, and then this author had uh, had created this elaborate story that they somehow had brought the gold to this Norwegian village, and then they were going to hide it in the children's sleds because the Germans who were looking for the gold weren't going to look in children's sleds for bars of gold 
Now, how eight-year-olds are carrying bars of gold in their sleds is, you know, a whole other issue. Wow. But, but. So you read this book, it's important to you, or it just, yeah. it piques your interest. What happens that you, do you instantly say, I'm writing a play based on this and my class has to perform it and I'm going to make this happen or what happens? It, it was, I read it, I got really interested in it. And then I don't remember the genesis of the play idea, whether it was my idea, whether it was someone else's idea, but I latched onto the idea. And then I pitched it to my third grade teacher who said, okay, we will do this. She was also retiring at the end of the year. So maybe she just thought it would be fun. Mm-hmm. You know, like we were her last class. Oh, so, so she was like, all bets were off. If we decided to do a play. Uh-huh. So I wrote it. So I wrote it into like a script and like we practiced staging it and we uh, like cast kids in the class in it and we performed it in the classroom for the other third grade because there were two third grade classes. We performed it for the other class at the end of the year. So my first question is, who did you cast yourself as? I was the I was the uncle in who I was the I wasn't the main character. Interesting. I, the, I cast myself as the adult character because I was always casting myself as like adult characters when I was a kid. Okay. I always imagined that I wanted to be an adult. Oh. I'll, 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 when, when we talk about more of what I read at about that age of my life, that'll probably come into a little bit more focus. Um, I was the uncle who was, it was his fishing trawler who was taking the gold away. Interesting. So how did this play go over? Because I needed to direct and I needed to, you know, do so other things. So you scene. couldn't be the star and be directing. Got it. I mean, I'm sure I, I'm sure I could have been if I demanded it, but I, I didn't want to. If I demanded it. Wow. Wow. It was my play. I'm just so in awe of you because when I was in third grade, I was cast in a play that our class was doing and I only had one line and I was so (laughs) freaked out by having to be on stage and be in this play that I literally locked myself not only in the laundry room of my parents' house, but inside the dryer. Like I climbed inside the dryer and shut the door on the night of the play. I was like, I can't. And my only line was somebody should do something. It was a play about saving the earth. (laughs) I was always cast like, you know, how you did like presentations and like little plays and stuff in elementary school. Yep. I was always cast in the narrator or adult type roles because I was a very serious and responsible child. So I could be counted on to like deliver my narrator lines or whatever. So like in second grade, when we did the Thanksgiving play, I was the only one who didn't have to dress up as a pilgrim or, or a Native American because I was the narrator. So I just got to dress up in like a button down shirt and slacks. So basically like an adult. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then in fifth grade, the elementary school I went to was closing and it had been open for 90 something years. So they did another play. There's a, there's a recurring theme of plays that I'm noticing in my elementary school years. Um, they did a little like play thing going back to when the um, school opened and I had to play the mayor from like 1905 or whatever. And I had to, they gave me a little speech with cue cards with like jokes, you know, like 1905 jokes written on them. So I had to like, with notations of like pause for punchline, there, there was a joke about like how long, like how much the school costs. So it was like, it cost, you know, a thousand dollars or whatever it was, pause for laughter and then continue. Wow. So you've had a really storied career. I was only in two plays and, <laughs> and both were disasters where 
you know, as I've mentioned, I did lock myself in a dryer in third grade. And then in eighth grade, I was cast in an all Spanish, our Spanish class at a Catholic school that I attended. Only 25 people in my grade. We all had to be in a, a play that was entirely in Spanish about a girl's quinceanera party. So it was all white people in a play about a quinceanera <laughs> in which I was cast as the grandma. My cousin was cast as the grandpa and my brother was cast as our son. So like extremely Freudian casting. With a, with a bunch of cultural appropriation thrown. <laughs> Correct. All white people. And I was so nervous that I didn't know my lines, which truthfully I would have had just as much difficulty if the lines had been in English. And all I remember was the <laughs> night before the opening night, we literally just looked at each other and said, realizing all of everyone in the crowd only spoke English. So <laughs> it didn't really matter. Clearly there was a failure that occurred well above your pay grade. Correct. In grade. <laughs> there were many failures that led to that decision that I can't articulate in either English or Spanish or really any <laughs> language. And perhaps no one can, but, um, to get back to you, so you're in this play, it's performed, it seemingly goes well, but like, what else is in your reading life at this time? Is this what you wanted to get to about your romanization of being an adult? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking, so so like the next year, the next year when I'm in fourth grade, I remember I gave a book report on a I mean, I read whatever was laying around the house, like whatever books my parents had, you know, I would just read whatever. But my father in um, the living room of my parents' house, and the, this bookcase is still there, he had all of the um, Tom Clancy, like Jack Ryan series. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah, he had all of them. So I read all of them in like third and fourth grade. Because my parents didn't put like content restrict. I mean, I assume if I was reading something that was like overly sexual or overly violent or something, they would have, you know, put some barriers on it. But like, I was like, can I read that? And they were like, yeah, sure. So I did a book report on, I was trying to remember what it was preparing for this. I think it might have been Clear and Present Danger. It might have been Some of All Fears. They all kind of run together. Um, and I read a description of, of those books a couple of years ago that I really enjoyed, which was white guy competency porn. Cause it's like a nice, a nice, like upper middle-class white guy will just solve all of the nation's problems. Um, but I did a book report on it and that quarter in reading, I got a B and I was not happy about it because how could I get a B in reading? I love to read. I read stuff all the time. And my mother like kind of talked to the teacher at some point and she came back and she looked at me and, and her best like North Shore of Massachusetts voice said, she just doesn't get you, Christopher. Don't worry about it. It'll be fine. <laughs> Do you think um, she was grading you or Tom Clancy? Um, she was probably grading me. I don't think she looked My mother admitted to me later that she, I don't think she, the teacher liked me very much because she thought I was like reading above my level and kind of obnoxious. I'm sure I was obnoxious as a child. I mean, we're all obnoxious as children. Um, but I was, I was, I was enthusiastic, perhaps overly enthusiastic. Um, I had also, I had also decided to, to sort of tie into what I was talking about with the play. When I was in fourth grade, I also decided I would write my own Tom Clancy-esque novel. So at some point I read excerpts of, from that. To the class? My, yeah. To the, as part of like a shared reading, you know, we were supposed to share something we'd written. So I shared oh. that. Yeah. 
that do I you think have any sense of the plot points of your Tom Clancy novel? No, was, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's pretty much indistinguishable from a Tom Clancy novel. Competent, competent white man thrust into, you know, th thrust into global crisis who solves it by being competent. Um, <laughs> I, I remember because I, I remember the thrust of that series where Jack Ryan is somehow a Marine, a history PhD, a CIA analyst, a financial genius, and something else all by the age of 30. And I was like, wow, this is just like some... You know, it's 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 like when it's like when like um, I create, like superhero characters have like five PhDs. No one mm -hmm. has five PhDs. No one should have five PhDs. One PhD is traumatizing enough. Truer words never spoken. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um. So you were someone who not only was an avid reader, but you were actively responding to what you read. By create putting out putting things out there into the world, like your play, your yeah. Tom Clancy novel. So I'm almost afraid to ask, but where does your reading life go next? Like I'm just so fascinated by where it's taking yeah. you. Yeah. So after that, I think that's when I sort of took my turn into into reading about the Civil War, because that's like a thing a lot of young boys do. They read about they get. Yeah, they read age appropriate books. And I remember we had a whole bunch of I had a whole bunch of age appropriate books about the Civil War. And then it turned into like a hard right into like adult grown up histories of the Civil War, the Battle of Chancellorsville or the Battle of Gettysburg and blah, blah, blah. Because there was a there was a I think it was a TV movie that like Turner did in the early 90s. Um based on this book called The Killer Angels by Michael Shara. Um, I think I pronounced his name right. Um, and that we, that was another book that was just kind of lying around the house. And I had read that, and then I saw the movie, so that sort of, actually, that's how I got into the Civil War. I, I The book was in the house, and then I saw, like, the TV movie, which starred, like, Jeff Daniels and Martin Sheen. And my father had a copy of it on VHS, so I watched it quite a bit back then. So much so that he had to make a separate copy on VHS, so I would stop using his copy. We also had to do that with Star Wars because my brother and I were watching Star Wars so much that he took the three individual um, tapes of each movie and put it on like one when you when you could buy those like super long VHS tapes that ran for like eight hours or whatever. Uh -huh. He just took all the Star Wars movies and put them on one tape and said, "Go." Now you can watch it whenever you want. So stop, stop using my copies. <laughs> so what got you into the Civil War? How did you start reading about it? Um, I think it was because the, I think it was, I think it was because the book was lying around. And then also my grandmother who lived on Nantucket and her mother who lived on Nantucket, they lived Great grandma's house was on Main Street. Grandma's house was right behind it on a separate but connected lot. They had a whole. My great grandmother was the research librarian at the Nantucket Historical Association until she was 90 years old. She had to have her hips replaced, so she decided she didn't want to walk to work with a walker anymore. Um, and she read. Talk about my mother reading voraciously. Great grandma read voraciously. She, when we would go visit her, she lived till she was 96. And I think she died when I was about 10. Um, when we would go visit her in her house, she would be sitting in her little like recliner, 
just stacks of books piled up next to her. By then they were large print books, but she, you know, she just had stacks of them everywhere. Um, she was kind of a hoarder. I guess she wasn't kind of a hoarder. She was a hoarder. Um, some of the things that she hoarded were books. Um, so she always had this great collection of stuff. And she also did genealogy and all kinds of archival stuff. So she had a bunch of Civil War stuff related to my grandfather's ancestors that she okay. had kept in the house and she had shown us and um, like his uh, the, this ancestor's discharge papers. He had served in the Union Navy, I think. And actually, I that's, I think it's in the closet. I have his discharge papers now because when my grandmother died, it got, all got passed down to me. Um, and like an inkwell that he used during the war. So these objects were kind of around. And my grandmother, who knew I would read all the time, and great-grandmother, who knew I would read all the time, kind of pointed me in that direction. That's so cool. I mean, I, I think for a lot of people... I think we, you and I might take for granted because we're historians that history is worth thinking about and reading and it's enjoyable and it can teach you things and inform how we live in the present. But I think something that's important to remember without romanticizing it is that a lot of times the entry point for people like us into studying history is either conversations with our family members about our own family history and or have, being surrounded by just objects in your house that themselves have, you know, meaning within your family history. So the fact that your great grandmother had those items from, you know, your own family's involvement in the Civil War, it's not just that reading the Killer Angels resonated with you. It was maybe you right. could imagine yourself into the story in some way or your family into the story in some way. Yeah, and I mean, I remember, I remember when. At some point before my grandmother died, and she died a couple of years ago, this is maybe 10 years ago now, my grandmother passed the inkwell down to my father. And she, you know, she's like, I want you to have this. My dad was like, why are you giving this to me? Like, you should be giving it to Chris. Like, he's the one, you know, who connected with the object. I actually think the, ink, the inkwell is over there on my bookcase. Hmm. Um, but, like, he's the one that connected with it. You know, why are you – it didn't have, it didn't have as much meaning meaning to my father as it did to me. So he was kind of like, I mean, he took it from her, but he just gave it to me. He was like, you take this. This is, hmm. this obviously has more, more resonance for you than it does for me. Like he didn't understand why my grandmother gave it to him anyway. So, so when you were reading about the civil war and getting interested in it, was this reading that you could share or discuss with your dad or was it just not his interest? Was this really you coming into your own as a reader and as a person? He was interested in it, but not to the, like, you know, not to the extent that I was interested in it. My parents were both really happy that I was um, enthusiastic about whatever subject I was reading. They've always been very supportive in the sense of like, oh, if this is what interests you, then we should, you know, so we should support that. So like they would, I remember my father went at some point during my reading, my, you know, my, this is like middle school early high school at this point, um, my reading of the Civil War stuff, like he went online and found me like the textbook that they use at West Point to teach the Civil War and bought it for me. Wow. Like, yeah, like he wouldn't, he wouldn't necessarily read this material, but he would go out and find it mm -hmm. and give it, you know, and, and, you know, say this might be, this might be interesting to you. Hmm. So do you have any books in mind from that period that were really important to you in this 
you know, developing interest? It's hard to see after the kill, after the killer, like the, the other civil war books just became such a blur in my mind that like it's, I mean, James McPherson's battle cry of freedom certainly stands out. I mean, that's still a book that gets that that's academic in nature that, that gets, you know, assigned to there. I remember reading that on the beach or, because I read a lot. I read a lot on the beach. I also read a lot on Nantucket, which to, to sort of give the background. So my father was born on Nantucket. And through my great grandmother, we have family or had family going back to when the island was founded. So about 100 years ago, my great grandfather built a little cottage out on the west end of the island. So whenever we went on vacation in the summer, we would go to Madiket, which is the part of the island that, that it is. And in Madiket, there's no cable no tv none of that stuff so we were expected to entertain ourselves and one of the things that we that i did was i read i still do that when i go when i, when I go up in about a month or so i've got books that i've been piling up and i have more books that i need to get you know that i'm going to get because i just read voraciously on the island um because it's something you know it's what you do you go to the beach you read you stay at the cottage you read um, so I've always, I've always, that, that place has always been very connected to reading for me. Hmm. It's a place, it's a place where, um, where I can get into a flow of reading that I rarely find elsewhere. Like, like there's flow of th that psychological state where you lose track of time and you're so absorbed by it. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I fall into that on Nantucket much easier than I fall into it anywhere else. I think that's true for a lot of people when when they get never mind going to a place where there's no cable or TV, but just the act of sitting on the beach is yeah. such an indulgence in many people's yeah. minds, you know, that you're you don't have to be at work. You don't have to think about, right. you know, practical concerns that reading just fits so nicely with that as kind of a gateway drug. And yeah. We had someone else on the show. I don't know if you listened to Heather Parker's episode, but she talked about the fact that she can only read um, Henry James at the beach because in her mind, <laughs> it's this like very indulgent thing that she can do and she only wants to do it at the beach. So do yeah. you have particular, I mean, it seems like all the reading you do there is significant to you because it's linked to the the space you're in, but do you have specific memories of reading on the beach that is you know, important for you? I guess the first thing that popped into my head is probably the next like sort of chapter of my reading. I remember when I was in early high school, I read a book called Moneyball by Michael Lewis, by the journalist Michael Lewis, which is this book about how, how the Oakland A's, the baseball team used statistical analysis to get ahead of other teams in the early 2000s. And I have very distinct memories of reading that book on the boat over to Nantucket and then in the cottage. And I remember, and I, and I think the reason that stands out to me is because that book, eventually I, I sort of, I had read many, many, many books about the civil war. I was like, okay, I got it. Or like, I'm, I'm going as far, I need, you know, I need to read something else. Um, and I'd always loved baseball growing up. Like we would watch the Red Sox and when we would go to actually when we go to Nantucket, we would watch games with my grandfather. We would drive to my grandparents' house and watch games and we'd listen to them on the radio out of the cottage. Because that was something you could do. We had a radio. Um and I remember reading that book and being like, 
oh, this is the thinking man's like approach to the game. Because I'd watch, I'd watch games and I'd listen to commentators and I'd read, I read the sports page in the globe um, when I was a kid. And it would always be the same, like, oh, well, you got to bunt in this situation and you got to do this and you got to do that. And it was, well, maybe what Moneyball opened the, opened the sort of floodgates for me was, well, why do we do that? Do we do it just because it's the tradition? And that's what people were doing in the 20s and the teens and the 30s when they were playing baseball. Well, the game's different. Maybe how we approach it should be different. So mm-hmm. it was like this introduction to this different way of thinking is the, is the way I kind of think about it. It's like taking taking the critical thinking approach and applying it to sports. And that really appealed to me. Mm. Had you read books about baseball before? Because when I think about baseball books are another genre that I really love and I love baseball movies and a lot of baseball movies and books kind of tread on narrating the experience of playing and a kind of knowledge that comes from experience and not this kind of critical view kind of from above of the system Um, And also nostalgia and the emotion of playing the game. So did any of those kind of narratives of baseball appeal to you? Or is this kind of like the only kind of baseball story that really resonates with you? A kind of critical analysis. I had read, I mean, I'd read some um, W.P. Kinsella. I think I'm pronouncing his last name right. The um, the Iowa Baseball Confederacy. I think I'm remembering that title correctly. He's also the guy who wrote what became Field of Dreams. Um, and I had read other sort of, you know, Red Sox-centric stories. And I had, and I remember, I remember, because I read Moneyball, because Moneyball came out in 2003. I remember that year, the year before, I'd gotten this big book with like lush photography and stuff called Red Sox Century. And it was like 100 years of Red Sox baseball. And it was all the stories about the players and all the stories about the seasons and stuff. And I had been really interested in that. And I had a, I remember I had a smaller book that was like about the history of the Red Sox, but it was geared towards younger kids. And I think it must've been in elementary school when I read that book. And I rem- and it had a photo of Johnny Pesky, who was a shortstop for the Red Sox in the forties. And his son had worked with my mother when my mother worked at um, the Salem News, which was the local newspaper. So mom got asked the son to get Johnny Pesky to autograph it for me. So I had this like full page photo autographed by Johnny Pesky. And it was very much in that same, like, here's the story of the team in the thirties. Here's what it was like to play stuff like that. And I read those stories. And I think, I think what happens to me after a while is like, I read enough of those stories and then I'm like, okay, I kind of get it what's the what's the what's another way to tell that story and then moneyball gets published and i'm like oh this is a different way to look at it hmm. that's interesting you know and and i was always and like that critical thinking way of approaching things was always kind of like that's kind of how i approach things in general even at that age because i mean looking back on it and i'll sort of talk about this when we get to it uh chronologically but like I didn't know what it was called then, but I'm an introvert. So I didn't have a ton of friends. I wasn't super social. I read a lot. Um, 
And that was the thing that kind of made me stand out was how much I read. And, you know, I was, I was like a smart kid and stuff, and stuff like that. So this other way to approach it was, was appealing to me. For our chapters listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. If you visit audible.com and sign up for a free 30-day trial, you can download an audiobook for free. Why not check out any of the Jack Ryan series by Tom Clancy? Who knows? Maybe you'll too be inspired to write your own adaptation. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com chapters. Again, that's audibletrial.com chapters for your free audiobook. Now let's get back to the show. What kind of kid were you in school growing up and, and how did that shape what reading meant to you and what kind of reading you did? Oh, I was like, I was the total over-enthusiastic, like, teacher's pet type. Um, you know, I got, I got A's or, you know, B, A's and B, you know, all that, you know. That, that's why the B in reading was especially a point. Like, I mean, I, could, I would get B's in, like, handwriting and, you know, stuff like that. But I was, you know, the B in reading was just, you know. Yeah, uh, you know, that's how, tough. How, how did I do that? Yeah, how did I do that? Um that's not what I'm supposed to, that's not what I'm supposed to get. Um, you know, I was always, I was always shy and I was kind of, kind of introverted. I, I would only ever have like a couple of close friends. Um, but you know, and, and, and like any kid, you know, your friends come and go and stuff like that, but the books were always there. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you feel like an outsider? If I felt like an outsider, I certainly didn't feel like I fit in with my peers. I was a year older than my peers, than the kids in my grade. Um, uh, before I went to, and this, 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 I know shaped my social interactions. Um, before I went to kindergarten, I did a year of pre-K because when I was in whatever, before kindergarten, um, I was, they, they observed me socially and found that I only ever kind of played alone or with like one other kid. And the people were the people who ran it were concerned that I wasn't socially developing enough, so mm. they recommended that I stay back a year, which my parents did. So then, I, so then I so so I did a year of pre-K, and then I went to kindergarten. So then I wound up being a year older than everybody else, which at times was not a thing. And then you know when you get to middle school and stuff like that, it becomes a thing. Um, so I was always cognizant of the fact that I was a year older than everybody else. Hmm. So when you, when you say the books were always there, what kind of comfort are you getting from the books? Because it seems like you're not really looking to books for an emotional response or that kind of relationship to reading. The things that you describe liking about the book so far is sort of finding a kinship with books. Like, oh, this author is approaching baseball with a worldview that's familiar to me. This is the way I also approach thinking about things in my life, maybe. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I as you were saying that, I, I think I always think about it in terms of stimulation. Hmm. Books are always stim- like, I always look to, to books that will stimulate me and me in some way, whether it's, you know, most of the time it's intellectual. Um, but I've always looked for because whenever this is sort of something I've noticed about myself over the last couple of years, it's like whenever I decide to do something, I throw myself into it. So if I'm going to read about the Civil War, I'm going to read 
way too many, you know, I'm going to read many, many books about the Civil War. Or if I'm going to read a Tom Clancy techno novel, I'm going to read the entire series, hmm. you know, so that, um, you know, it was just a way of, it was just a way of engaging. And then again, I think it was a way of sort of almost interacting with the characters in a similar manner to which you would interact with someone you know. But the, like I said, the book was always there. Or there was always a new book that you could that I could engage with. Hmm. And did reading ever help you connect with other people? Like, do you remember kind of like reading a book and thinking, "Oh, I want to talk about this with somebody," or is it? Are they just for you? Is it part of your internal life, and that's it? Um, I would often look for people who would be reading what I what I'd be reading, but a lot of I've I've learned I I have kind of a wide array, array of tastes. And especially at that age, you know, you know, if we go back to, you know, when I was in high school, nobody else in my grade was really reading Moneyball. Um, so I would certainly try to talk about it um, because one of the things I do love about reading is sharing what I've learned. Like if you ask Casey, my wife, um, you know, what I'm reading, she can pretty easily tell you because I'll have talked to her about it or she'll have asked me about it. And I have no problem trying to share it. It's just that after a while, I, I kind of cut back on, you know, when I was younger, I just sort of cut back on sharing about it because I wasn't really finding anyone who was doing it. So I was like, oh, okay. Right. Well, yeah. talk about that. We'll talk about something else. So did books kind of like, not your secret life in high school, but sort of your like intellectual... I don't know. I mean, a way to kind of a resource for you at a time when maybe socially you weren't finding other kids who were into the things you were into. Oh yeah. It was a huge resource for me. Cause like I have, I've never had a problem like on a Friday night, even in high school being like, I'm going to read mm-hmm. like that was never a problem. For, like I never felt at some point I did feel awkward about it, but after a while I was like, why? I like it. Mm-hmm. who cares like yeah if, i mean it's it's read... weird like being an introvert has gotten such a bad rap in yeah. popular yeah. culture although now it's sort of like i'm seeing more articles that are kind yeah. of reclaiming like i'm an introvert or i'm an extrovert slash introvert which is a combo i don't fully understand still but yeah yeah I, you you can't be both i i think i think they can exist on a spectrum but not like like so I'll, so I read a book about introversion actually a little bit after I finished my PhD a couple of years ago um, called Quiet by Susan Cain, which I would highly recommend if you are an introvert or think you are an introvert because the book is a really nice deep dive into the culture that surrounds extroversion, why we value extroversion so much, and also the scientific research into introversion. Hmm. and what you know you sort of the background the background of that and also like why we risk losing something by not talking about by not valuing the contributions of introverts because it turns out you know most of the the extrovert ideals that we aspire to like you know being bold and being you know the first person to talk and being the loudest well those people don't actually have the best ideas (laughs) nor are they particularly the smartest people in the world it's just that our, the way our brains are wired is we think that's the way that that it is. And mm. if you look at the the skills that ex, ex, that excuse me that introverts cultivate, those actually lead to 
better decision making or as good decision decision making. It's not that extroverts don't make good decisions; they do, but it's just the 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 values of extroversion are certainly well overstated. Hmm, that's really interesting. I'm yeah, definitely going to check that book out. Yeah, I would recommend that book. It's really good. It it the, when I first encountered it, it kind of the the first context in which I read about it was like, oh, this is a great self help book, and I was like, I don't want a self help book, like. And then I read it. I was like, "Oh, this is not self help at all." It's it's this. It's, the author is is a woman who was uh, I think she was like a she was a lawyer who negotiated like contracts and, and you know like high end contract law and stuff like that. And then she just got interested in she was she's an introvert and she just got interested in um, learning more about herself. So she just read the academic literature and you know read histories and read you know sociolo- sociological stuff. And, I recommend it. Yeah, it sounds cool. Okay, so we left off with you in high school. What are some books that were defining for you at that period in time? Let's see. Moneyball? So after Moneyball. Okay, so Moneyball was like... I suppose I should throw in the fact that I also that's I also wrote a... Um, I also wrote a novel based on after reading Moneyball. A baseball because- novel? Yeah, it was about it, it. It had a very brief shelf life because it was about the general manager of the Boston Red Sox and how he won the World Series for the first time. And then, of course, like a year and a half after Moneyball came out, the that book, happened. Uh, yeah, that happened. So the, the, the sort of <laughs> hook of the book disappeared, and it was basically and like again with the Tom Clancy thing. It was, it was, it was the novel was definitely better than the one I wrote in fourth grade, but it was still you know very sort of derivative. Um, I think my father still has a copy of it somewhere which I don't know that I ever want to look at it again. Um, I'm trying to think of one of the other big stuff I read. I read a lot of, I read a lot of like political stuff in like my junior and senior year of high school because I had a really great APOS history teacher who encouraged that. And he made like, as part of the class, he made us read like, he made us read like all the president's men and, um, What's the book about the Helter Skelter? Mm-hmm. Book um, and there's a couple others that I'm not remembering right now. But he gave me, um, actually, this is sort of a funny story. Um, he gave me a biography of Tip O'Neill that I remember reading. And I carried that book with me for, you know, to college and then to grad school and stuff like that. And then actually when we were moving to Louisiana from Connecticut, we sold off a bunch of books at the book barn in Niantic, which if you love bookstores, the book barn is. It's amazing. It's heaven. I mean, the, the, you know, it's a good used bookstore when they have multiple cats. Oh yeah. I was just going to say, yep. Come for the cats and the books and the books. And like, um, so we sold, and that's where I sold off most of my Civil War collection. Because by then, my dad had been like, "You have to get these out of my house. You have to take <laughs> them." And I was like, "Yeah, I don't really want to move these to to Louisiana." Like, so we sold a bunch of them. We sold a bunch of them off. And when Casey and I were up in Connecticut in March, the last day we were there, our flight was out. It was at like four or five in the afternoon. 
And we didn't have anything else to do. So we were staying in Manchester and we drove down to Niantic and we went to the book barn. And the, my favorite part of the book barn is the main barn, but downstairs. Mm-hmm. You have to go around the outside and you go down. That's where the good stuff is. The first floor is all World War II, Civil War, you know, you know, dad, dad books, dad kind of history. Not my thing anymore. So I, so I, so Casey and I were down there exploring, and that's where Casey found uh, a couple of years ago. She found a copy of this will be, only be relevant to people from the Yukon History Program, but found a copy of Dick Brown's History of Massachusetts, which she still has. Um, but I look on the shelf, but so so we're down there exploring, and I look on the shelf because I like I know I've sold off. I mean I think I sold them like two hundred books or something, and I'm like oh I wonder if any of my books are still here, and I look on the shelf, and I see this book, and it's like. That's a biography of Tip O'Neill. I used to have that book. So I take it off the shelf and I realize this is my copy that's still there. And I know it's my copy because I open the cover and there's the inscription from my high school AP US history teacher. And I was like, oh, I did not mean to sell this book. So I bought it back. <laughs> I, I just figure like I, I, I let them rent it. You know, I, I paid them to yeah. hold it. For a little while is the, is the way they stored it I, for you yeah, yeah exactly because once i saw it and i showed it to casey i was like oh i cannot like i didn't want to get rid of it i like i i felt bad that i had sold it away anyway because i didn't you know i didn't want to because the teacher meant a lot to me and then once i saw it, i was like i gotta take it back like i can't <laughs> i can't risk it it's, it's on my bookshelf now over there um so so i read a bunch of that stuff in in um like late high school What's the, where's the next significant phase in your reading life? What that are the next? College. Yeah. What happened? So I went to Hamilton and one of the reasons why I went to Hamilton college was they had no like prereq, they had no distribution requirements. So you could take whatever you wanted. And for me, this was heaven because it was like, Oh, this is the chance to take, to do, to read Shakespeare. So I took a whole, so I did the whole class on Shakespeare. This was a chance to read classical stuff. So I read Homer, I read Virgil, Ovid, all that, you know, all the, all the like classic Greek Roman stuff. And I also took courses on, um, and, and I think one of my favorite courses I ever took was a course on Russian literature. And the back half of the class was devoted to reading the Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. And we just did a deep dive into that book. And I loved that class. It was so fun to just read a couple of chapters and really delve into thick, into like, into like this rich Russian, you know, why, why write it in 10 pages when you can write it in 40 with all this, <laughs> you know, lurid prose. Um, and that class I just love. And we had to do like reading responses to it. And we just got so deep into it. And I read, I reread the brothers K a couple of years ago on Nantucket. And it was great because I still had my notes that I wrote in my copy of the book. So I could be like, Oh yeah. Aloysia really does just ping pong between every character. And he really has no independent thought of his own. Oh, okay. <laughs> that makes reading it again a little bit easier or a little bit more enjoyable. Just cause like now I'm, huh. I'm benefiting from my own observations. Yeah. Do you often reread? And I'm wondering why those Russian novels, um, particularly um, that book, resonated with you at that time. I've been rereading a little bit more, like recently. Now that I have less academic reading to do, I can kind of go back and read. Um, I, 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 re I reread fiction more than I reread nonfiction. 
because I because th- I, I think you I think you kind of change your approach to and this is true of nonfiction too but I think more so for me like your life experiences inform every time you read mm-hmm. just every I guess every time you read in general but every time you know I read the Brothers K or whatever so you can go back and you can approach it from a slightly different angle where you know when I read it in college I was like 20 and didn't know much about the world and you know these crazy Russians are running around and they're consumed by their passions and consumed by you know their one emotional state and then you know when I revisited it I was probably like 29 or 30 and I was like oh okay I can kind of understand these emotional states more now that I've you know lived 50 percent more of my life than I had when I read it the first the first time Hmm. yeah what else what else resonated with you in that time? So you're reading like all these classics and yeah. different uh, I canons. Loved, I loved the Iliad. Like, it, it, and this became a sort of recur, or the, the, cause, cause when I read it, I was like, oh, this is like where all these themes of honor and masculinity and, you know, virtue and, you know, what, what, what is, you know, how do we define, you know, what is a man? in Western civilization, it all, it comes back to this, where it's a bunch of Greeks sitting around on a beach arguing about who got the most, you know, gold and who took the most, you know, ornamentation from a temple that they sacked. And if they don't get enough of it, or, you know, Agamemnon takes it away from Achilles, Achilles goes and cries in his tent for eight books, while all these other Greeks die because Achilles' honor has been offended. (laughs) So, you know, it's like, oh, well, if you want to draw, uh, you know, you can draw a line from that, you know, to my, you know, the work I did on my dissertation, which touched on, you know, ideas of Southern honor and masculinity. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is this is literally how far back this goes. Like, hmm. I, I always thought it was important in college to like get around, get a good rounding in that, um, you know, traditional kind of Western education where you read the classics and stuff like that 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 really interested to me because i because i like to be i like to read so i like to read as much as i can and like how could i consider myself a reader if i didn't read shakespeare if i didn't read homer you know Mm -hmm. yeah i mean uh, i think that's such a hallmark of small liberal arts colleges yeah i mean and yeah i went to one as well and um certainly that was my approach and informed my experience and yet, you know, you mentioned your dissertation and the work you've done as a historian, and a lot of that work is on the histories of people who don't necessarily fit into that kind of canon. Um, so I'm wondering if that was something that you were thinking about and, and informed your reading at that time, too. Yeah, by then, like, my academic interest was more, I'd moved on from the Civil War, and I'd moved more towards like in college I did a lot on abolitionism and like anti-abolitionist violence violence I've noticed is, is, is a theme that runs through a lot of my research because hmm. um, because the, then my doctoral dissertation became about physical violence between slaves and whites um, and that's also what the book is about but um, so so by then I moved I'd moved into sort of this abolitionist anti-abolitionist um, or abolitionist and anti-abolitionist violence stuff. And so it was this kind of, for me, it was this kind of way of like, oh, okay, this is the like, this isn't the broader context. This is the broader, broader, broader context of 
of all of this, you know, these these themes on violence and stuff, you know, stuff like that. And and all of this literature was also informing, you know, the way William Lloyd Garrison thought about whether violence was an acceptable thing for slaves to engage in, which for most of the time he didn't think it was. He wanted them to be to kind of let other people do it. Hmm. It's interesting, too, because I think the reading that you do in college really stays with you. It's clearly stayed with you and that you're rereading things even now. But because it's such a weird and vulnerable time in your life, because you're trying to, you know, separate from your parents and their culture a little bit and figure out who you are and what kind of person you want to be and what do you want to do for a living and all that kind of stuff. Do you remember anything you read in that time? kind of having a self-conscious or maybe even just in retrospect influence on you trying to figure out who you wanted to be as a person? I think more of that stuff came later because I've been thinking about that question a lot, um, especially since I finished the, the, the PhD was, you know, what, and more of the, more of that stuff I think sort of happened after I did my comps. Um, when well, I guess I'll, I'll sort of back up and talk about the comps process for those for for those unfamiliar. Um, unfortunately, you and a lot of people we know are overly familiar with this process. So the way the way it worked at Delaware was we had about five months to get through our four subject areas, and it was you know three hundred and I had three hundred and seventy five or so books on the list. Um, yeah, which was looking Crazy. back on. Yeah, looking back at it, I mean, I don't know. So much of what happened in graduate school is just like, did that really happen? Was that a thing that I did? Because and and then why did I do that? Right. Um, and and that was the big shift in graduate school was 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 sort of thinking from you know when you read for classes and when you read for comps that it really teaches you about deconstruction and how to break down books into their arguments and component parts and stuff because that's what I had to do with with the 375 books or whatever. So, so you have to, you know, so you have to learn how to break all this stuff down. And of course, by reading, what I really mean is, um, what I really mean is you're, I, I mean, I was working through about five books a day, four or five books a day. So you're reading the introduction, you're reading the, um, conclusion and maybe a chapter or two and then you're going online and finding a couple of book reviews from academic journals and i had these notebooks in which i was scribbling you know what the book was about and who you know where the arguments all fit in and stuff and it was a really great way to um again teach you how to deconstruct but also completely burn you out from reading mm-hmm. and i don't know did this did, did you get burned out by your comps oh yeah yep i had to take a break from reading after that for a little while yeah i did too like I, I took a couple of, I think I took a couple of months and I, and I don't know if I've since then, if I've ever read a complete academic book cover to cover, I, I'm sure I have, but I can't for the life of, I was thinking about this, but I, I can't for the life of me name it. Hmm. I know I've read huge sections of them. I've, you know, you get very good at trolling books for what you need. And this is where something like Google Books or Amazon Book come in great because if you're looking for a specific word, you can just do a targeted word search and then, you know, and then you go to the bottom of the shelf and just grab the page. And, um, but like, so that process just kind of like broke me for a while from reading. And then 
I got back into reading a couple months later, but it was through fiction, which I which I don't think I've talked a lot of. Well, I guess I talked about like with the Tom Clancy stuff when I was younger, but a lot of the reading I did, you know, sort of high school, college was nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Um, then after the PhD, after the comps, it was, oh God, let me read something that's not about my subject area. I, mm-hmm. I see you. Not, I see you nodding your head. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's I totally get it. Yep. Um, and the the first book that I read after that was um, a spy novel by John Lecaire. Um, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, like the film version of it had come out and I went and saw that. I think it was like right after I finished my oral exams for my comps because I needed to like unwind or whatever in case and I went and saw it. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. There's a book. I'll go read the book. And I loved the book. Hmm. The, uh, the, the book is about the hunt for a mole inside British intelligence in the 70s. Um, John LeCare is a former British intelligence operative who wrote novels. Who, well, he still writes novels. I actually just finished reading his latest novel last night. Um, and I loved it. It was it was the anti, like LeCare is the anti-James Bond type of spy stuff. It's all about the moral ambiguities and the gray areas. And all these spies are just like bureaucrats who are, you know, overweight and, you know, just playing intellectual games with one another. And it's not like all the action is internal. Hmm. It's just all about like the morality of what they're doing and, you know, are they doing the right thing and stuff like that. And that at that time really appealed to me and I still find it, find it interesting. Um, so that was sort of the first novel that I read after that. And then I read, I probably read half a dozen or so of his books since then, since all, mo- most of his books are about the cold war. Um, because that's when he was writing some of his. He since the end of the Cold War, he's written on other stuff too, but that was the thing that kind of turned. That's that's what kind of got me back into reading after the comps, because you know again comps is just if you if you somehow survive it and still can come back to loving reading after it, I think that says you know. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I mean, you went through the same thing, like, and and any of us who have done that absurd thing in the humanities you know you have you have to love reading to survive the comps process i think you have to love reading to like like you have to love it while it's going on Mm -hmm. to to get through and then you have to love it at the end because you have to kind of rediscover it because it's been so you've been so brutalized by it i guess is the way i would put it (laughs) but you were saying before that it's interesting because that process for me transformed my interest as a reader or brought other things to the fore. Like I never stopped reading for fun while I was reading for comps. I just stopped reading. I started reading poetry more and I started to get more into fiction and memoir and things that were absolutely not anything related to what I was doing in Mm -hmm. my comps prep. Um, but you were saying before that, that, you know, when you were doing, turned to books to kind of, as like a plane to think about yourself and your life and what kind of person you wanted to be, that that happened for you after your comps or after grad school. So I'm wondering. Yeah. Yeah, That happened sort of like as I, the last couple of years of grad school and then like right around the time I was, um, like after I finished. So I started reading, this is probably three or four years ago now. 
so as I was, you know, I, I think by then I'd probably done most of the dissertation research. I was in the writing phase. So you're always writing and researching and revising because that's the nature of getting a PhD in this stupid field that we have PhDs in. <laughs> um, I started reading, I became interested and I, it was just in my like casual reading of like authors and stuff on the internet. I became very interested in decision making. And this was tangentially related to my research because my research was about why do slaves decide to resist? So why did they make that decision? But I also just became more interested in the, in the subject in general. And I was introduced to this, to the, um, this book by an Israeli psychologist named Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow, um, which, again, like with Susan Cain's book, I'd highly recommend Kahneman's book because it's basically about this research that he and this other Israeli psychologist named Amos Tversky did back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s about human decision-making and the biases we have that influence our decision making. Like, why do we, why do we make decisions that run counter to what we know we want to do, or that is good for us, or just, you know, why do we have gaps in our logic? Like, to take an so they discovered all, they researched and discovered all these biases that influence human thinking. Like, I'll give an example. It's called the availability bias. If I ask you which one do you think happens more often? people committing suicide with a gun or people getting murdered with a gun. Generally, the answer that people come up with is people getting murdered with a gun because we can immediately think of an example. Oh, I saw, I just saw a story about that on Dateline or on ID or on the news or whatever. It's actually the other way around. It's, it's about two to one. The ratio is about two to one, you know, two suicides for every one two suicides with a gun versus every one murder with a gun. But it was just about sort of all this decision-making and stuff. And I was like, and then I began to notice it in my own like thinking and decision-making. And I was like, oh, okay, well, this is something I want to be aware of. Um, and that led me down to read a whole bunch of stuff about, about decision-making and behavioral psychology and then behavioral economics because there was some research I read, a, I read a whole bunch of research on, um, written by this, by this University of Chicago economist named Richard Thaler, who just won the Nobel Prize for creating the field of behavioral economics. And his research is just about how supposedly we make good financial decisions based on our rational self-interest. Well, if you've ever seen a person act with money, you know that that's not true. Um, and so that really interested me. And then I just started thinking about, okay, these are ways in which I can sort of think critically in a different way than I've been thinking sort of historically. And that's kind of important for me to be a critical thinker, but in kind of everything I do. Cause one of the things that came out of the comps was I can never turn off that critical thinking part of my brain. I don't know. Can you do that? Because I can't. Hmm. So like when I started using that, those tools that we learn, you know, in deconstructing books and writing and doing all this stuff, I started looking for it elsewhere. And I started looking for people who were doing similar things in other, in other fields. So it's like, that's what led me to Tversky or Kahneman and Tversky and Thaler and, and all this stuff. And it was 
And that, and then all that sort of started to crystallize as I was finishing my PhD with, oh, okay, this is how I'm going to think. This is the way I'm going to approach things as an adult. This is going to be who I am, you know, because you can think of kind of, because I went right from undergrad into graduate school. Um, so it was, okay. And I sort of had this moment of when I was done with, with graduate school, I was like, okay, well, what are you going to do now? <laughs> like, you've got the PhD, yeah. but what's the next step you know like and and my father-in-law who has a phd he's a psychologist um was like listen now is the time to step back think about who you want to be and work at that for a little while and that's when i and like that for example is when i read susan kane's book about introversion and it was this great sort of like oh okay there are other people like me this is you know it's I've always been very insecure about myself and my work. I think that's a common feature of, of you know, kind of people who do humanities research and just, you know, people in general. And it was, oh, okay, you can take this, you know, like every, your introversion is not a thing to be, it's not a thing to worry about. It's fine. There are other people like it. They've gone through the same experience as you have. Don't worry about it. You know, you like to stay home on Friday night and read, stay home on Friday night and read. You don't like to go to the concert where like there's a thousand people. Don't go to a, don't go to the concert. It's fine. It used to like, for like, for example, when I was in graduate school and I would go to academic conferences, the, the, the worst part of academic conferences for me were the receptions and like the, you know, the socializing in the hallway before and after the panels and stuff. Because if I didn't know somebody, I'm I'm not the person who goes up and says hi, you know. Who, who I'm I'm just I'm that's just not who I am, and I always felt bad about that. I was like, no, that's not what you should be doing. You should be outgoing. You should be playing the extrovert. You should be doing all this stuff. And then I would beat myself up about it. And then I read Kane's book, and I was like, oh no, plenty of people like this. Don't worry about it. You live in a society where, you know, these extrovert ideals are valued and blah, blah, blah. Introverts have, you know, all this stuff too. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm good. Now it's like, oh yeah, I, I don't want to do that. Nope, I don't feel bad about it. Like we were, we were, Case and I were out, I think this, was, this must have been last week. And with one of her co her colleagues from work, and he was he was making fun of me a little bit for like, as it was some interest. I was, it was, it was, I was, it was either sabermetrics, which is the, the money ball stuff or something else. I can't remember what it is now. And he's like giving me a hard time about it. And it used to be like, Oh, I would really take that personally. I would really get upset about it. You know, blah, blah, blah. And now I'm like, eh, that's my interest. I like it. You don't like it. Well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try to like affect you. You know, I'm not going to try to change your mind about it. You want to be kind of a jerk to me. That's fine. I don't really care. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just sort of about having that, um, you know, just like, yeah, it's okay. It's okay to be like yourself. And for me, I, I noticed this when I was reading Kane's book and, and then some stuff, some stuff I've read since then. It's like, if I read about it and it relates to my personal experience, like with introversion, I understand, like it becomes much more acceptable to me mentally to like, oh, okay. Other people are like this. They have the same, like, they have the same thought processes. They think the same things. They react the same way as you do. There's comfort in that. And there's like, oh, okay, yeah, you, you, they feel that way too. You're all fine. 
don't worry about it. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think of that famous James Baldwin quote about reading, which is, you know, I'm going to garble it, but essentially you could go through something and think you're the first person in human history who's ever felt this emotion or gone through this experience and you pick up a book and then realize instantly that you are not alone and that countless others have felt it before, experienced this before. And I think for me, at least, and it sounds like for you, the sense that books can make you feel less alone in your experience is one of the greatest gifts that it can give um, any reader. Oh, yeah. And, that, and that, that's a recurring theme of the stuff I've been reading recently. It's like, yeah, everyone thinks this way. Everyone's like, it, there, there's a lot, you know, we're told growing up that like, oh, you're unique, you're special, you're blah, 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 blah. Well, in many ways, we all are, you know, we're all unique and special. But in any ways, we're all human beings and we all have these similar feelings and emotions and stuff like that. And it's okay that we all have, the, you know, because there's comfort and strength in the fact that like, oh, I'm not the first person to, you know, like after I finished my PhD, I was like, I don't feel anything, you know, when I'm done. Well, I talked to my father-in-law about it who has a PhD. And he was like, oh, yeah, I felt absolutely nothing mm -hmm. about it. And like every person I've talked to, and, you know, you and I were talking before we started recording, you don't really feel anything. It's this monumental accomplishment. It's on my, you know, my PhD is hanging on my wall over my, over my shoulder over there. And everyone tells me what a great accomplishment it is. And my mother, you know, will send me birthday cards addressed to Dr. Bowden. <laughs> and when I finished, it was like, what was the big deal? And then when you read everyone feels that way, you're like, oh, okay. Everyone feels that way. It's probably the pro probably the people who don't feel that way are the weirdos, not, you know, not everyone yeah. else. But what I think is interesting too, is that you've kind of come to these books that have helped you accept behaviors or facets of your personality that maybe you were embarrassed about before you felt yeah. insecure about before and you hit them when you were at or around 30 yeah. and I think that's important because so many you know I'm 31 and a lot of people I know basically when I was turning 30 said to me there's something about being 30 that you like a flip a, a switch will flip and you will not care what anyone thinks anymore about anything in your life I yeah I mean I I passed my Casey makes fun of me for this. I passed my PhD. I did my PhD defense five days before I turned thirty. So I got so so she was like, "Yeah, you you got you 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 finished your PhD before 30. And I'm like, five days before I turned thirty. But around that time, or it might have been a year before, I was I was sort of looking at my father-in-law and my father, and they're very different people. My father-in-law is a psychologist who, who, you know, analyzes people's behavior. My father's an engineer, and my father-in-law talks can talk quite a lot, quite often, but he can also be quite reticent. My father, and my father doesn't talk very much. He's more of a, he 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 shows you his affection through, um, through action. Like for example, the bookcases I have in my office, he made them. And actually several of the bookcases we have in the house, he made them. We sort of combined on the project last year. But I was thinking about it, I was like these 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 two, you know, figures in my in in my life don't care what all these people think of them. They're very comfortable in themselves. So I asked so I asked Casey, I was like, when did your father reach the point where he stopped like caring about other people's opinions? And she was like, Oh, it was a while it was a long time ago. But there was a time when he was very concerned about all that stuff and then it just kind of happens and you don't worry about it anymore and it's like i mean to, to to a certain extent i still do worry about it like but much much less than i used to because like i can't 
change how people react to what I like and what I read. And you know what? I like what I read. So if I read, you know, if I read Tom Clancy novels when I was four, it's a cute story. So, you know, like, or, you know, or now where I'll, you know, I've just finished reading a spy novel. And before that I was reading a biography of Luis Bonnell, the um, surrealist filmmaker. And it's like, yeah, that's what I like to read. Like, mm-hmm. you want to make fun of me for it? Go ahead. But I mean, who cares? I think it's cool to own who you are and also a manifestation of that and what you like to read. I mean, yeah. so with that in mind, maybe by way of closing, can you recommend some books that you've read recently that you think our listeners might like? Hmm. Um, if you're an introvert, again, I'll go back to Susan Cain. Um, if you want to sort of think about like human biases and decision-making, Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, Thaler's book is called Misbehaving, which I really enjoyed. Um, I'm one of those millennials who read Infinite Jest. Um, I can't say I'd recommend it to anyone else. If you want to get annoyed reading a book, you will get annoyed reading the book. It's very humane and sort of humanistic in its approaches to drug addiction and stuff like that, but it was also one of the most annoying things I ever did. Um, there is a book that I read last summer that I absolutely loved, and, I, and I've recommended it to multiple people. It's called Strangers in Their Own Land. It's a book by a sociologist named Arlie Hochschild. Her husband is Adam Hochschild, who wrote, among other history books, King Leopold's Ghost, which is one of the best history books I've ever read. And it's written by someone who does not have a PhD in history. Have you read King Leopold's Ghost? I don't think so. But I, I, I would highly recommend it. It's about the Belgian um, exploitation of the Congo in Africa. So, you know, it's not a cheery subject, obviously, but it's just this wonderful, wonderfully written book. But her, um, but... Adam Hochschild's wife, Arlie Hochschild, is a sociologist at UC Berkeley. And she did pioneering work into the uh, emotion, into emotional labor, in the, especially performed by women and other, and like, you know, flight attendants and waitresses, you know, the, the service classes type stuff in the 70s and 80s and, and into the 90s. Um, they're quite the academic couple. Um, but she wrote this book called Strangers in Their Own Land, where she spent about four years embedded with the Louisiana Tea Party. Specifically, she was interested in the issue of environment and of the environment. And why do people in these areas where they are ruthlessly exploited by oil companies and big business and stuff, why do they constantly deride the EPA and any attempts to regulate um, to regulate these industries. You know, she calls this the great paradox. And the book, you know, and, and the book ends right around the rise of Trump as a presidential candidate. So hmm. it's, it's inadvertently very insightful into the rise of, of, of Trump in the Republican Party. Um, but she, she does great work, not like looking at you know, demographics or stuff like that, but, but the emotional side of the story, why do, what, what emotionally do these people latch onto when they decry environmental regulation and stuff like that? And she talks about, she calls this the deep story and then why, and then eventually it helps explain why they, why they latch onto Trump. 
and it's ba and it's basically about like the decline of the American dream amongst these um, middle to lower middle class whites in mm. the deep in the deep south, and it's just really compassionate. It's really it's it's really critical yet compassionate. And she talks about the ways in which they view race, in which they view the environment, in which they view a whole sort of um, host of stuff. That was on Strangers in Our Own Land was on the list of the New York Times six books that explain Trump. Most, I read all six of them. Most of those books are not good or worth your time. Um, that one is. That's a great recommendation. I'm gonna. You've given me so many books. I need to check out now. I will not have enough time, but I'm gonna have to make the time for all these books. Well, thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. This was super fun. I'd like to thank our guest, Chris, for sharing his story with us. I'd also like to thank our producer, Taylor, for all of her help. You can find us on Twitter at ChaptersPod. You can find me at MaryMahoney123 and Taylor at MJTThePhD. You can find us on Instagram at ChaptersPod. There you'll find Shelfies submitted by our guests. We're redesigning our website at the moment, but be sure to follow our page on Facebook. And there you can get updates on the show and join conversations about each episode with other listeners. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us in the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps listeners find our show. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.